Welcome to episode number 20 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we truly go global, from Australia to Colorado and from Denmark to Germany and the UK. You'll hear about a heartwarming K6 restoration, how to set your gliding goals, a contest for old glass, a fabulous new site called Nordic Gliding, and We Glide, the new kid on the block, that serious competition for the OLC. That and a whole lot more on episode number 20 of The Thermal. Steph Smith grew up around gliding and fell in love with it. Her father, Kim, was a keen glider pilot and had his own K6 that he adored to fly. After inheriting her father's glider in 2017, Steph lovingly restored it and as a result was the 2020 recipient of the British Women Pilots Association's Naomi Christie Cup. The BWPA says the cup is awarded for a flying or flying-related personal achievement beyond the recipient's wildest dreams. This award is not aimed at the record-breaker or high achievers but is awarded for an achievement special to the individual. I reached Steph Smith in Upper Hayford, the UK. Hello, Steph. Thanks for coming on the Thermal Podcast. Hi. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, tell me a bit about your K6 and why it's so special. So, my K6, she's not just any K6. Her name is Bimbo. Um, you've all seen loads of photos of her now. Um, she used to belong to my dad. And sadly, in 2017, my dad passed away after losing his fight with cancer. And Bimbo's held a place in my heart. She was part of my childhood. From the age of 11, she's been in my family. Mm -hmm. And I've grown up with her. And when I turned 17, my dad finally was brave enough to let me fly her. So I've spent my teenage years flying her. And some of my happiest memories of my dad and I has been around Bimbo being on the airfield together. And it was something that him and I shared. Um, when he passed away, she was the only thing I wanted. It's where my best memories lie of him. But sadly, where he'd been ill, um, she hadn't been flown in five years. So she'd been, thankfully, put um, in the hangars at RAF Watersham. And the lads had stored her nicely away for me there. Um, so she'd been kept safe and dry. The trailer, however, was a complete and utter wreck. But that's... That's another story. That was a very long rebuild for that one. So we, before we go much further, tell me a bit about Bimbo. Why Bimbo? It seems like an odd name for a glider. So back in the days when everybody used to have their trigraphs, hers was B-Y-M. And and a tri sorry, a trigraph my, is? The three letters that you used to have as the registration of glider. Mm -hmm. in the so when UK. they were registered with the BGA, you'd get them with a three-letter code on the back. Okay. Um, so everybody called her Bimbo. Um, ironically, there used to be a K7 that was BKN, and she would be called Bikini. So we used to have Bikini and Bimbo out flying together, both red and white. That was always good fun. And, and you and your father weren't always eye to eye when it came to the the name Bimbo. Oh no, no, we it's it's her name. She's we've never tried to change it. I mean, my dad and I took it down slightly different routes. Uh, my dad liked that it was the name of Betty Boo's dog. So okay. he used to have a lot of Betty Boo associations with it. So even in the cockpit now, there is a model of Betty Boo with her dog Bimbo. And that was my dad's little sort of mascot for when he went flying. So, of course, that stays in the pocket now as well. So it's going flying with me. Well, that's lovely. So talk to me about the restoration. How much of a, of a challenge was it? She, Bimbo hadn't flown for a couple of years? 
Well, we have five years of missed maintenance to catch up on. So as you can imagine, that's stacked up with missed inspections and just neglect, really. So it started off with a short list of just little bits and bobs before she went in to get looked at. And it turned into cutting the holes in the wings to do the glue inspections because, of course, they were overdue. They were nearly due for a second time by the time they were looked at. Mm -hmm. And then it was simple things like the cables had frayed. There was a lot of corrosion. And the seat, I mean, the bolts that were holding the seats in, they'd completely rusted and fallen apart. So they had to be replaced. There was a crack in the seat, so the seat needed a repair. And the torque tube was really badly corroded, so that needed a lot of work to get that ready again. Now, you're you're an aircraft engineer yourself, right? So you're able to do a lot of these repairs? No. um, So my aircraft engineer's license is... It's the ASA B1, which means I can work on aircraft over 5,700 kilos. Ah, okay. So there's a separate license. I can do the conversion to put mine onto doing gliders. I've just not quite got around to it yet. I'm waiting post-Brexit for them to come up with what the new rules will be for how to do the license conversions. So what do you work on that's over 5,000 pounds? Currently, I work for Airbus, and I'm working on the A400M, the four-engine propeller aircraft that the RAF have bought. So I'm I'm embedded into an RAF squadron looking after those with them. Great. Now, this this glider itself, many people give up on restorations halfway through because it's a question of money or time or quite often both. What what kept you going? It's the only thing I've got left of my dad apart from my memories. And she's so intrinsically tied into my memories that I just couldn't let her go. Mm -hmm. So time, time and money didn't really mean much. I mean... Okay, it did cost me a little bit of money. I'll admit that. There was, was some overtime work to pay for things. Mm-hmm. But it had to be done. She could not be allowed to not fly again. And I know I'm not the only one that was looking at ways to get her flying again, should I have chosen not to. So there was no way between the friends and family we were going to let her disappear like that. She meant too much. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the glider's over 50 years old, right? Yeah, she was 54 this year. She was built in 1966. Mm-hmm. And flew her entire career in the UK? Yes, she has. So she started off with a chap who, unfortunately, shortly after, 18 months after having her, he spun her in from a winch launch and decided to get rid of her after that. Mm -hmm. And then she spent a long time flying with the RAF Gliding Association. So she passed around a lot of clubs there, spent a lot of time at RAF Bista back in the day. And she had quite a beautiful history with the RAF, passed around. A lot of people have flown her. And that was the nice thing about getting her flying again. She came home full circle back to Bista. And there were people there going, oh, I remember flying her. She was blue and cream back then. And, oh, look, I can show you her in my logbook in 1974. It was wonderful. Tell me a bit about uh, your father's love of gliding. How did uh, that start? So before my parents were divorced... um, My dad had always had his head staring at the sky. He was a paratrooper before I was born. So he was he was really into his aviation. Took me to air shows as a kid. I mean, my earliest memories are trying to climb over a fence to get to a tornado. (laughs) Um, So he eventually persuaded my mum that for one of his birthdays, he wanted a gliding trial flight. So we went along, watched him do his flight. And you know what it's like being a 10 year old. You go, my God, that looks amazing. So. That's the same day I I had my first flight, and that was it. We started together. He just had the advantage of being a lot older than me, so he didn't have to wait to go solo. 
Right, right. It's it's so nice that you've taken on the the love of gliding from your father like this. Yeah, I mean, it was one of our hobbies, so it was something we could do at the weekend together. And it progressed to when I went to college, I would finish early on a Wednesday afternoon and he had Wednesdays off work. So I'd meet him at lunchtime. He'd fly here in the morning. And if it was a nice day and if he was planning on sharing with me, I could fly Bimbo in the afternoon. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. Now, have you got a lot of time in her? Have you done a 300 kilometer flight? What kind of flying have you done in it, in her? Um, well, I only actually finished my bronze in my cross country this year. I've been a little bit lapsed with my flying I when I went to university I ran out of time and money my, my studies took up an awful lot of my time but gliding kind of fell to the wayside for a few years and just before dad got ill I'd been working on getting back into gliding was we moved near Bista so really I had I had to pick up and start again with a lot of things it was retraining to go solo again so I've not had as many flights in her since then as I'd have wanted but you have yeah, some great goals, obviously. I mean, it'd be great to be able to do your 300 in this uh, K6. It's totally doable on the right day. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm starting small. I'm starting my first plan with to do a 50K now that we're ready to go and do that. Yeah. Uh, just need just need the weather to come back. Well, I, I love K6 uh, aircraft. I've flown them quite a bit myself, and they're just fabulous little gliders. They're just so forgiving. They're so easy to fly. It's just so quiet, unlike some of them where aircraft whistle, like the K8s, we get the gaps in the canopies. She's she's just so demure. It's just such a pleasure to fly her. Yeah. Well, I can I can imagine when you're flying, it, it almost feels like you're, you, you've got your father sitting on the wing beside you kind of thing. Yeah, so I've, I've got his Betty Boo that I carry. But the other thing I did, I had a friend make a decal to go in there. So there's actually a decal just by my right shoulder that says, in memory of dad. Oh, that's so lovely. he's always there. That's lovely. Steph, thank you so much for telling me about your, your K6 and uh, have so much fun flying it. Thank you very much. I can't wait for next summer to come around. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Steph Smith spoke to me from Upper Haver, the United Kingdom. Go to the Thermal Podcast Facebook page to see photos of Bimbo. Clemens Chiapek runs the well-known gliding blog called Chess in the Air. In the blog, Clemens covers all sorts of subjects of interest to glider pilots, including a fascinating recent article on McCready settings. But the blog post that caught my eye was one about setting goals for the 2021 flying season. I reached Clemens in Boulder, Colorado. Hello, Clemens. Uh, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me on. So be before we get into your gliding goals for 2021, for this year, let's talk about your motivation for setting goals. Why do you feel the need to do this in the first place? Oh, gosh, I mean, uh, why do we set goals? I mean, why do we set goals in life? I think it's mostly about improving ourselves. Uh, and uh, the same is true for soaring. So when I, when I got into soaring again after a 30-year hiatus, uh, I basically tried to decide for myself to try and learn as fast as I as I can, but also stay safe along the way. So I put a lot of effort into um, becoming a better pilot, but also becoming a safer pilot. So those those both of those things are important. So so safety is the driving factor for setting these goals. 
No, I would say it's one of the factors. I think self-improvement as a pilot uh, is probably the key driving factor. Uh, I am passionate about safety because I see that I, I know the sport is very dangerous and most people underestimate, grossly underestimate how dangerous it is. And uh, the only way to uh, stay safe um, uh, is to, to really dig in and think about it. But it's not what drives me. It's, it's, it's not, my goals are not driven by safety, but I am very passionate about safety and helping others also to uh, make sure that, um, you know, I want our whole sport to be safer. Right, right. Uh, but my own personal goals, they, you know, my number one goal is to stay safe, but there's a lot of other improvement goals, uh, like, you know, flying faster, flying further, uh, achieving uh, specific objectives, so uh, it's a it's just a great way to think about it and then and then execute. Now, have you been doing this for the last couple of years, or when did you start setting goals for every season? Yeah, I think so. Really, I really only became specific about it, and that I published it uh, last year. So for last year, and now I've done it for this year, uh, this coming year. Uh, but I would say in the prior years, it wasn't. I didn't publish it, but I, it was clearly still something that was on my mind. It was clearly pretty specific in my own mind as to what I wanted to accomplish. So um, it's, it's just a helpful way, I think, to, to, to motivate yourself, basically. If you, if you declare at the beginning of the year what you want to do, well, then you, you have something in your mind that you focus your, uh, your attention to. Right. I, I, uh, I completely uh, agree. I mean, I, I used to do a, a, a sort of level of this when it came to the different seasons what whether it was trying to get my declared 500 or you know setting a goal every year because it gave you something to work towards motivated, exactly. motivated yep. me it's motivating exactly yep so let's talk about the goals that you've set for this particular flying season for 2021 let's hope everything happens because of covid is still in the way but let's hope it happens let's talk about the goals that you've set for this season? Yeah, so the first one is, um, you know, as I said, the first one is always to stay safe uh, because uh, if, if you don't stay safe, then yeah, all the other the goals yeah. go out the window. Yeah, so so it's that's the first requirement. And I've, I've written a lot about what it takes to stay safe and we can we can go into into more detail on this, well, what, on so this what is it, if you're interested. But what does it mean for you then? You, if that's your goal for this season, for you particular, with your flying experience, I don't know how many hours you have and, and that kind of thing, but you specifically, what are your goals from the safety point of view if this is, you know, number one on your list? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I would just say it's it's adhere to my own advice. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've published a lot about how to stay safe and uh, what mistakes to avoid. And, and I just, this is something I keep reviewing in my own my own advice. I've read a lot I've, from, from other people. I've tried to learn as much as I, as I could. And um, so, so this is not an end in, in itself, right? It's just it's a prerequisite for mm -hmm. all the other goals. So right. That's no, no, no very, but very yeah. important. So you review that every year. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. You review your. I review your own... it every. Yes, I review it every year. I try to teach uh, it. I present about it. I talk about it. Um, because I, I believe that, um, you know, there's 90% of accidents in our sport are ultimately the, 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 the mistake of the piloting command and yeah. could be avoided. And uh, we will only avoid them if we confront them and if we think about them and if we really work hard to 
make sure that they don't happen to us. Absolutely. So what's what's number two on your list? Uh, number two is, is is really sort of flying specific skills. It's kind of a skill-based uh, goal. Um, I've done a lot of analysis uh, about you know my flights compared to other people's flights. Boulder is competing in um, quite uh, successfully competing in the OLC Speed League. Uh, we came in second last year out of 1,019 soaring clubs, I believe. No, that's pretty good. And, and so um, I, I tried to, uh, you know, I've, I've analyzed my flights compared to other people's flights. And so I, I, I kind of know what I think, what skills I need to improve to be a better pilot. Uh, in this case, for me, I think I really want to focus on NATO in cruise flight. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to, and much more on NATO than on just staying in the, in the you know, in, in the lift band, but I, you know, I really want to look at my NATO values versus, versus other NATO values from other pilots. Um, use more of the altitude band. I tend to be a little more conservative, maybe, and in staying pretty high. And uh, I think there's more room to get faster if I use more of the altitude band and uh, then what I call precision thermaling. Uh, which is uh, really not give anything away, uh, you know, as little as possible away in, in quick centering and uh, really flying very precisely uh, those 45 degree bank turns. Right, not being sloppy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. there are many listeners to this podcast with thousands of hours experience and some people with 40 hours. Talk to me about what you mean by netto. Um, I mean, netto is basically it's uh, when you go from thermal to thermal. What you're trying the, the, the fastest way to improve your speed is to stay in lift between uh, from thermal to thermal. So if you find lift lines uh, or also called energy lines, yeah. if you follow those lines, uh, you're much faster because you don't have to stop and, and thermal. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the usual metrics that, uh, if you look at the OLC, the metrics that they will uh, publish, um, uh, they, they're composite metrics. So, for example, uh, the um, you will see the the best um, uh, your your average glide ratio. So they publish average glide ratio for your flight, and uh, and they publish your uh, thermaling percentage. And so people try and say, well, if I get my thermaling percentage below 25%, that would be pretty good. Well, my thermaling percentage is for here because we have a lot of energy lines is way below 25% already anyway, but I'm still not fast enough. And so that I try to understand why is it that you can have a good thermaling percentage, a low thermaling percentage, and uh, and still not get the same speed as maybe the best pilots do. And uh, and and a and the much better metric uh, to use in my mind is is NATO and NATO is basically just saying what is the average, what is the average um, sink rate or rise rate of the air mass that you're flying through while you're in cruise flight. Right. So you go from one thermal to another thermal. Is the air rising or is it sinking? And it makes a huge difference whether it's rising at 1.5 knots or it's rising at two knots. And so I, <laughs> I'm just very focused on that one metric and looking so at you spend a lot of time analyzing your flights by the sound of things uh, absolutely yeah and that's the key to your particular success and well this is i think is a key to yes it's a key to learning because if i think uh if you don't know what you try to improve it's very hard to improve it right so 
the reason I analyze it is just to find out what is it that I actually, in theory, could improve. And the only way to find out is to compare your flights versus other people's flights on the same day in the same air mass. Right. So we have number one, safety. Now we're talking about improving your, your netto speed for, for this particular season. That's a goal. What, what are the other goals? Yeah, then the, the other goals are more uh, um, outcome oriented. So there is some, some speed goals, uh, specific speed goals. So I will continue to perform or compete in the, in the speed league as part of our team. And the way that the OLC speed league works is that um, it's a club-based competition. So clubs again, around the world compete against each other. And the top three scores uh, from the, from the, on each weekend from three different pilots on each weekend will count for the, week, for the week's OLC scores, for the speed league score. And so the only way that your score will actually count is if you are in the top three of your club. Um, and so my goal is to be in the top three of our club 66% of the time. Last year it was 50% of the time was my goal and I just exceeded that. So I'm trying to up the ante a little bit and want to be among the top three 66% of the time, two thirds of the time. That's and great. The, so I mean, you literally have the numbers to look at. So, you know, you're, yeah, totally. You can set we a have a lot of people goal. competing. Yeah, we have a lot of people in, in our club that. Uh, that fly speed league. Yeah, so that I think there were like 30 people in our club competing in the speed league last year. Um, I mean, really competing is probably just more like more like 10. But mm-hmm. uh, but 30 people keep uploading their flights um, to to OLC and uh, they, their scores could count. Yeah. Right. Right. And and the other uh, items on your list, your to do list. Yeah, <laughs> to do list. I mean, it is a motivation list uh, more than a to do list, but it's it's all fun. Uh, the next one would be distance goals. Uh, so there's and if more, I'm looking at this more as a portfolio. Uh, so last year I accomplished my first 750 declared um, uh, nice. diploma. Right? Congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. And so uh, obviously a step up from that would be a thousand. Um, um, so that might be one of those, uh, and then we have a local um, a local contest here that is kind of a you know, the brainchild of one of our club members. It's called the uh, the Fortina Challenge, where you're trying to fly above all of the mountains in Colorado that are more than fourteen thousand feet tall, and um, uh, there's fifty five or fifty eight of them, depending on how you count. <laughs> and uh, I think I've, I'm at, at about 39 so far. And, nice. Uh, and so to get this is really hard, right? These are these are really hard turn points to get to, and some of them are pretty far away. So you have to have, you might have to fly 200 miles to get there. And then you have to get high enough to round them, and then you have to fly 200 miles back. So it, these are these are not easy flights to make. Well, this, but they're a lot of fun. When I'm listening to this, what you're doing is you're constantly setting challenges and and trying to improve your flying and and these are, and, and this is a fun challenge doing these mountain peaks, but you have to use all the skills that we've talked about earlier to be able to do that. Absolutely, yeah, yep. The skills are just a prerequisite. I mean, you have to fly fast to do these flights, these these long flights, because you're gonna run out of day if you're not fast enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're obviously an experienced pilot. Have done done a lot of flying, but. The, the same principles apply to a, a, somebody that's just gotten their license, somebody that's just gone solo as they're moving forward, setting these goals, you know, a half a dozen goals for the next season, right? 
Absolutely. And then we're trying to encourage this in our club as well. So, uh, for example, I mean, we're really trying to get people now motivated to fly their first tasks and then move from their first tasks to completing their batch flights. Uh, so we have, uh, we're just introducing a series of, of beginner tasks uh, and um, trying to motivate people to set goals around um, around those tasks. Right. Now, on this list, I think we've, we're almost through the list. What were the final goals? I think there were some contests on your list and a few other things. Yeah, in terms of contests, I, I am trying to fly my first contest. I haven't flown contests in the past, uh, and uh, I will be flying my first contest. Uh, I don't have huge expectations for that. More than it's more learning than than anything. Sure, the experience. Yeah, it's the experience. So I've, you know, my first one will be in Albert Lee, Minnesota, uh, which, which will be the first time I'm flying in the Flatlands. Believe it or not, ah, lucky you. My whole my whole flying career was in was in mountains, either in in Austria or in um, in Colorado or in in Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this will be in Minnesota, and then I'm going to Montague, COVID permitting. So we'll see about that. This is a two seater contest. So I'm flying with a friend in his uh, ES thirty. Uh, uh, 32. Nice. Uh, and then. Nice uh, friend to have. Yeah, he, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I'm uh, flying in a contest in Nephi, and uh, we'll see if I make the one in Texas. In uh, I think three, three of them will be will be plenty. Well, listen. Be, before we uh, let you go on this uh, chat here, talk to me about the what are you flying? And you're, you're out of the Boulder, Colorado club. What do you fly? What t- tell me a little bit about your own flying. Yeah, I have a Ventus uh, 2 CXT, so with a turbo sustainer engine uh, that I bought last year. Uh, it's a great plane. Uh, it's not, you know, not the latest generation, but one generation earlier, uh, but performs exceptionally well. And uh, I'm very happy with it. It's very easy to fly and uh, uh, very, you know, relaxing to fly and uh, has great performance. So I'm really happy with it. That sounds like fun. Well, I will be looking for you in the OLC to see what you're up to. Thank you very much for taking the time to to chat. And I think these kind of interviews will help motivate other people to set their own goals and also think about these safety goals. So I I really appreciate your time. Oh, for sure. Thanks, Harry. Okay, thanks, Clemens. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yep, thanks. Bye. Clemens Chypek spoke to me from Boulder, Colorado. His blog is called Chess in the Air and can be found at chessintheair, all one word, dot com. That's chessintheair.com. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about Proving Grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks, all one word, .com. That's soaringtasks.com. Proving Grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. Earlier this year, the Formula 1.0 Gliding Grand Prix competition wrapped up in Australia. The contest is unique in that it's essentially for older glass gliders. Gliders that are generally affordable to purchase and fly. The competition was won by Scott Lennon. 
I reached Scott at his home in Tamora, New South Wales, Australia. Hello, Scott. Uh, welcome to the, the Thermal Podcast. Hello, Harry. So before we get into the actual contest that you won, and you know, you can tell me about your strategy and all that sort of stuff, let's start with the premise of Old Glass and what this contest is all about. Well, I think it all started when uh, Nick Gilbert and Charlie Ianson uh, went to the Banella Worlds and were very disappointed with the uh, the social atmosphere and, and the way it was all run. So they came up with this great idea after many beers and um, decided to make this format where they uh, basically running the old glass because uh, two of them sort of grew up around gliding fields and they're the sort of gliders that they all remember. So talk to me about old glass. What's the definition of old glass? Is there an age limit or how does it work? Uh, because this is a handicapped competition, um, and we'll get to the way the handicap works, uh, they need a, a limited range to make it work really well. And because they like the old uh, Jantars and Cirruses and Labelles, uh, they just chose the uh, sort of Formula 1.0 which relates to the handicap range, which labels are a 0.98 on our local handicap system. And uh, I think Jantars are the, on the one. So it's, it's based around the, the, the one handicap system. Hence the name F1 race. Yes. Huh. F1.0 GP. Well, that's fun. Now, so this this contest is there an age limit though? I mean, or does it have any or just the the handicaps? No age limit on it. Um, it is pretty much just the handicap limit, but as a result, it ends up being based around those uh, older gliders. Okay. Um, we did try a few different versions where we invited uh, open class and had all the uh, the big nimbuses and kestrels and things like that, um, but. Uh, sort of decline in numbers on that sort of front and an increase in numbers on the uh, the, the normal class. Um, we were going to have up to 48 entries this year, but uh, because of sort of COVID risks and things, a lot of people decided not to come. Right. So let's talk about this year's contest then. How many gliders were there and what was the dominant type? Uh, well, like I said, we had up to 48 pre-entered, mm -hmm. but uh, the, uh, on the day, because of a few, not actual restrictions, but sort of the risks involved with traveling, mm -hmm. uh, we ended up with 14 turned up. Right. Um, they range from the Jantar through the Cirruses and Hornets. We've got one open Cirrus and uh, a bunch of labels. I mean, it makes sense that the numbers dropped quite a bit because as I understand it, what I've been seeing in the news, you've literally had like the state of Victoria had a border around it. I mean, you couldn't travel between states, right? Well, it actually happened in the middle of our competition. At the start of the competition, there wasn't actually any restrictions. Um, so the South Australians came over, the Victorians came up, but we didn't get as many. We had overseas people who were going to come, but we didn't get as many as those. And in the middle of the competition, uh, due to an outbreak in Sydney, um, they started closing the Victorian and South Australian borders, and, and we actually lost a few of our competitors 
just so they could get back across their borders without having to go through isolations. Great, God, yeah. I mean, that's traveling within the country, and then you still have to isolate for two weeks. What a drag. Correct. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the contest. What What were you flying? I was flying a uh, borrowed label, a standard label. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to own a, a standard label as my first glider, um, and I borrow this one that I uh, I work on each year for the, the owner, mm-hmm. and he's generous enough to let me thrash it in the competition. <laughs> yeah, but if you thrash it, you're the guy that also knows how to fix it, right? Well, that is true. I, I am fairly careful to make sure it's all in tip-top condition because uh, due to the nature of this competition and the uh, the way we do the finishes, quite often you're doing final glides at V&E. So uh, you want to make sure. So LaBelle, you've, you've had a lot of experience flying the LaBelle. Obviously, it's a favorite ship of yours, and that's why you chose to fly it in this contest? Uh, partly because it was available. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I do have about... Uh, six or seven hundred hours in standard label so quite familiar with them nice nice so let's talk about the contest where was it held and what were the conditions like uh it was held at leeton which is a uh, a small airfield it used to be a a fairly busy gliding club Uh, but over the years um, members have disappeared and and it's sort of we're the only real big gliding activity that goes out there each year now. Okay. Uh, but it's also got a bit of history with uh, some of the organisers who used to go to competitions out there. So it's a really good field. It's set up really well for the sort of competition that we do um, and allows us to do, you know, the sometimes frowned upon low-level finishes these days. But the airfield is set up just so well that it's really safe and easy to do these, um, you know, 50 foot finishes for the photos and get all the excitement of the final glides into the finish line. But I mean, the gliders were, you know, when they were made and when they were being flown in the world and that sort of stuff before the time of GPS and, you know, there were people on the ground that needed to watch the glider cross the finish line. So (laughs) there's a reason for all that, right? Well, there is that, but uh, now it's just for entertainment value. Yeah. It's just great fun to, to race your mates to the finish line. And, you know, we, we have very close finishes. You'll have three or four gliders all finishing within about 10 or 15 seconds. And and because it's a Grand Prix race, first across the line gets the points. So it doesn't matter by how many seconds you beat them, as long as you get to the line first. Gotcha. And that leads to uh, a little bit of fun cat and mouse games on the uh, the last leg. and having just enough height so that you can just go a little bit faster than your, your mate in front of you. Now, I know you won the race or the contest, but how close was it? Talk to me about your competition. Well, we basically ran it over a week, but uh, due to uh, a little bit of weather, we only ended up flying four days. And um, That's unusual for Australia. Days, it is a little bit, but um, we have these trough lines that uh, produce really good weather, but the trough sort of moves back and forward and has sort of good and bad sides to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just happened to be under this trough that just kept moving back and forward. And, and on one day, we'd have really good weather and the next it would be raining. Um, while 100 kilometres away, our next side along was flying quite happily while we were under rain and vice versa. Huh. 
So it was a little bit interesting with the weather, but typically the, the days were six to 7,000 feet. Uh, we, we had one day that went up to uh, about 9,500 feet. Um, we had scattered cumulus on most of the days, um, at least on parts of the course. And on average, the climbs were in the sort of three to five knot range on most of the days. And, and who was your closest competition? What were they flying? Well, everyone was the closest competition because um, <laughs> uh, there's so many talented pilots and, uh, of course, all the gliders are so close together. Um, so it was just whoever was in front of the points on the day was uh, your biggest rival. Okay. But in, but in the end, you, Actually, met, you got enough points and you did win. Uh, yeah, I had a, a slow start. The first two days, I was, I was trying really hard. So you'd, you'd, you'd go across the line. Oh, just, to, just to fill in the, the listeners, the courses that we use are a handicapped distance course. So let's say on a, a course where you're doing a 180-kilometre triangle, uh, each of the turn points has a variable circle around it, mm -hmm. depending on the aircraft type. So on this particular day, a Jantar had a, a 0.5-kilometre circle. Uh, the Cirruses and Hornets had a 1.1-kilometre circle. And the LaBelle had a 2.2-kilometre circle. Okay. So that was the variable turn points on each corner of the triangle. That's interesting. That makes sense. So you start with a, a sailboat type start where you have a countdown to the start. You have a limited height and a limited speed start. And everyone goes across the line together. Uh, if you're late, well, you're already behind. Yeah. <laughs> and then you race around the course. And because of the way the handicapped distance is, the first back to the field across the line is the winner. There's no post-race handicapping um, as long as there's no penalties, which get applied uh, in terms of seconds. Um, whoever gets across the line first is the winner. Keeping it nice and simple. Very simple. And uh, we also have uh, these SkyMate trackers, which were uh, developed specifically for this competition. And they're a a little black box, self-contained. Each competitor gets allocated one for the competition. Um, the task is automatically loaded into it each day and it tracks gliders all around the course and gives live tracking, um, which anyone can watch. Uh, but because it's this Grand Prix event, unlike some of the, the FAI classes where you can watch the tracking all day, but you still don't know who's winning until, you know, seven o'clock at night when all the traces have come in and all the handicaps have been applied. Right. Um, in this competition, you can watch the tracking. Whoever's in front is winning. Cool. I can... And it gets away from that, uh, all the FAI scoring and, uh, you know, all the debates about the leeching and following and all the gaggles and... Oh, that's a really that interesting appeal. concept of that and... Yeah, I like that. And that's the thing that I really, really like about this Grand Prix racing. Um, if you're if you in the middle of the race and there's someone in front of you, it means you're losing. Yeah, it's simple. <laughs> the only way you can win the event is to be in front. Huh. 
No, I like that. And what are these boxes that you discussed, are, are they developed locally? Yes, yes. They were developed um, by some of the competitors and um, one of the sponsors of the event. Um, and they were developed over a, a couple of years, but the, the one we've got at the moment is really good. It, uh, it comes with um, uh, the, the background software that runs the competition. Uh, also has lots of features like we don't bother with briefings anymore. Uh, we have text messages that go out to all the competitors for any information they need. Uh, the task is um, uploaded to the, the site and you can log it straight into your, um, your phone and put it onto your navigation instruments. Uh, all the scoring is done automatically with the loggers. Uh, it even sends you text messages as you go around the turn points, hmm. telling you you've gone around the turn point and you're in whatever place. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, what, what are the plans for the, the F1.0 into the future? Are you hoping to turn this into a class of its own with you know international competitors? And what, what, what's the thinking? Well, it, it was supposed to have a uh, half a dozen internationals this year, mm -hmm. but um, that's sort of all fell apart a little bit. Um, I know the organisers would like to um, have more people around the world even just running these sort of comps. Yeah. Um, I personally love the format um, and think it's much better than any of the other VFAI-type scoring. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a long time before we see it take over from the Nationals as uh, a format, but we can always hope. Well, as as a guy who who flies an old Jantar, I I love this idea, and uh, it it sure sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, post COVID and all that sort of stuff, I'm hoping to be able to make a trip to to Australia at some point, and maybe do some flying in this contest. That would be great. Well, I'm sure you'd be welcome. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much for telling me about this great great story uh, about the contest. I really uh, like the the whole concept, and uh, and congratulations on winning. Thank you very much. Okay, Scott. Talk, talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Scott Lennon spoke to me from Tamora, New South Wales, Australia. Scott's glider repair shop is called SL Composites. If you want to find out more about the contest, go to f1gp.com.au. That's f1gp.com.au. <laughs> WeGlide is a new online site for glider pilots that aims to be one-stop shopping for all your gliding needs and wants. Everything from weather to flight analysis and from flight planning to contest information. Moritz Althaus is one of the founding glider pilots behind WeGlide, and I reached him in Heidelberg, Germany. Hello, Moritz. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, WeGlide, I've seen a bunch of things online about it. It looks pretty interesting. What is it all about? Um, so WeGlide is about building an international platform uh, where you can upload your flights and where you can analyze your flights and compare your flights to other flights. And also you can plan your flights in advance. Um, there is weather integrated uh, into WeGlide. So it's, it's really about building sort of like an ecosystem around different products and gliding. So you're almost talking like a, a one-stop shopping experience where, you know, now we go to the OLC, I might go somewhere else to analyze my flight, weather is somewhere else. Is that your overall concept, it, it, like to, to be the, the one thing for everybody? 
Yeah, I, well, I don't think we can actually do everything in our platform and there's specialized tooling for, for some parts, but we hope to to collect some stuff together because at the moment um, you can upload your flights to OLC, but there's lots of stuff which you can't do on this platform and we hope to bring it together a bit. Interesting. So what's the actual motivation for starting WeGlide? Did you get together with a bunch of buddies? How, how did this work out? Yeah, it's interesting. So we started as, uh, as, as a bunch of three, three buddies approximately a year ago. And basically we were toying around with some, some data of gliding flights and other people were toying around with it too. And there were lots of interesting, um, interesting stuff, which they did. For example, they were looking at where some waves, popular wave spots are, where thermal spots are and other interesting numerical analysis. And at some point we realized that if we sort of wanted to do it properly, we actually needed to build an entire platform around it um, to be able to, to do those kind of analysis. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what, what kind of backing yeah. do you have? I thought I saw something about the German Aero Club. Yeah, that's right. So interestingly, um, the German Aero Club at that stage was also looking for a new partner to host the German decentralized competition. Um, because they had some interesting ideas like declaring, so declaring tasks before your flight is, is part of the competition and um, they thought about doing this online would be interesting and also they wanted to, to change a bit to their scoring system and we were just getting started so we um, reached out to them and it was sort of a good connection to get started for us and also now they are able to, to implement the rules that they want to implement. So you said there are three of you working on this full time. How do you fund this? Where's the money coming from? Okay, so in the beginning we didn't have any funding, so um, we were all sort of still affiliated with university and still studying, and and we basically did it in our free time. Um, now we're working full time on it, and uh, we received some funding at the moment, um, which is. Um, from the from the uh, EU, so um, from the German government, um, because we have some ideas about scientific research which can be done with the data, um, and they will fund us for some more months. Mm -hmm. um, but we hope to set up a way where we um, get some money from from the national clubs uh, for hosting their competitions, and maybe also have some sponsors or on our platform um, to be able to develop this uh, full time. Will glider pilots have to pay a subscription service to this, or how, how is that going to work from the user end? Yeah, so basically all the features which we have now on our beta, so um, the task planning, the analyzing stuff, and all this kind of stuff, it will all be free. Mm -hmm. um, we have thought about doing some premium functionality later on, which could be, for example, if you analyze your flights and you want to see the satellite pictures, um, of that time when you were flying um, as sort of a background movie when you go over your flight. Um, so it would be very costly for us to store this amount of satellite pictures. And this could be sort of a feature where users could pay a small amount of money. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Now, you said you've, you're also including a thermal map. You're working with SkySight. How, do, how is that in theory going to work from an integration point of view? 
Yes, so SkySet was very easy for us to integrate with because SkySet is already integrated in many other sites like CU and they integrate with LXNAV on the devices. Um, and basically you'll be able, when you plan tasks um, on our website and you have a SkySet uh, subscription, you can connect your accounts um, in our settings and then you can use um, some of the SkySet predictions for task planning. Okay. So in, in the big picture, um, there's a, a bit of a crowded space out there with OLC and a bunch of other uh, up-and-coming gliding sites that are trying to do the same thing. How are you guys going to set yourself apart? I mean, there's it, somebody's going to have to be a top dog after a while. Yeah, that's true. Well, we, we hope to do it just by having a, a beautiful product with lots of functionality. So, for example, um, one one idea we had when we started this was that we really wanted um, for pilots to be able to, to gain a lot of knowledge from their flights. And me personally, I, I always like to analyze flights of others and compare them and have a look at what routes they were flying. And previously, I had to click on every flight and, and iterate and, and sort of make notes or whatever. And on our platform, for example, um, we, we can display over 2,000 flights on one map. On one map. Wow. So, for example, you could say, well, I want to see all flights of, of today on one map because maybe there was a weather front coming in and it would, it would be interesting to see if anyone sort of managed to to cut through it or manage to to stretch his turn point further than anyone else. And um, you sort of need a map with many flights on it to be able to do this. So you can do this on our platform, but you can apply generic filters. So it doesn't matter if you put a date filter onto it or, for example, you could type in uh, my name and then you would see all of my flights on one map and you could also add an airport and you would only see my flights um, from this airport on the map. And I think this will be very an interesting feature, um, especially as people start to upload more and more flights on our platform. So Benjamin Bachmeier from, from the Alps, he uploaded 500 flights um, and you could sort of, uh, he's mostly flying in the, in the Alps in Europe. And this was really interesting for us to sort of have a look at all of these flights on one map and see popular routes and all this kind of stuff. And in the future, we hope to to also be able to do some kind of weather filtering, so you could sort of see all flights on one map from one one kind of weather situation. And this would also be um, this could help people to just gain some more knowledge about areas. Hmm. Now, for years, I've been uploading my flights onto the OLC. The problem I see moving forward is: do I have to choose which site or are you going to work together with OLC? Because now you can go into the OLC and see, for example, who's had the best flight in Canada. But if half the pilots in Canada launched the their data to the OLC and the other half up on WeGlide, you're never really going to know who's had the best flight. How are you guys going to deal with that uh, issue? Yeah, that's definitely true. So I think in advance, I have to say I'm, I'm really thankful for what OLC has created because it's an international gliding site and OLC really has enabled people to compare in ways that you just mentioned and also they OLC has funded me personally in the past so I'm really very thankful. Um, well our motivation is that we think that um, because of all the features we're trying to create at some point um, 
we hope to become so popular that everyone uploaded uploads their flight on our platform. Right. So, so this is the goal for us. Right. So it's it's a it's almost a death fight, right? I mean, uh, in the end, you're hoping to put OLC out of business, I guess. I mean, that's and I don't mean that in a really nasty way, but you know, that's business or that's the world we move ahead in, right? You need one top dog. So yeah, our motivation is not about um, some other platform. So our motivation is creating a beautiful product which people like to use. But in the end, you're right. Um, and I think really in the, in the past, it's been very valuable to have one big gliding platform, like you mentioned. But in Europe alone, um, this has sort of not been true for the last years. So you know, there's in in France, there's a, there's a page they use. They don't use OLC the same as for Poland. The same as for Austria, the same as now for Denmark and Czech Republic. Um, so we sort of hope to actually bring it together on one platform and sort of enable this international, uh, be this this possibility to compare flights on one pl platform again. So at what what stage is we glide at right now? What kind of functionality do you have, and how many members do you have? What stage are you at in your growth? So actually, we have not launched yet public, publicly. We have a public beta version, um, but have not promoted this version. We have just sort of sent some links to, to people and sort of let the site spread a bit in the community. At the moment, we have 1,000 um, pilots on Weeklight and approximately 10,000 flights which have been uploaded. And this has been very, very valuable for us because we received some feedback and were able to sort of fix some some small stuff and we think that in approximately two weeks we are ready to to launch publicly and to make weeklight available to anyone huh, fascinating well moritz it's uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you uh, about we glide obviously i've signed up to it I'll, I'll see how it works out for me this year my guess is i'll be uploading to the olc and to we glide until i figure out what works best for me moving forward um before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your own uh, your gliding career. Where where do you fly and what do you fly? Well, at the moment I fly in Nachstetten in Germany. It's in the in the Taunus and it's a very interesting area. Um, some mountains um, and mostly very good weather conditions. And we have the possibility to sort of connect to every every gliding region in Germany. Um, I don't have a have an aircraft myself, so I fly aircraft from the club and in the past I've also flown um, quite a few sponsored aircrafts um, yeah that's my gliding situation so are, are you a competition pilot um, I wouldn't consider myself as a competition pilot so I in like approximately three years ago I flew lots of competition and uh, I actually liked very much and gained lots of knowledge but I sort of noticed that I was sort of narrowing down a bit when flying competitions, so I sort of decided that I was enjoying gliding the most when when I was just doing um, long distance flights. So what I really enjoy is if I if I spot a good weather window to sort of set everything up perfectly, um, sort of determine the best weather window and launch as early as possible and try to to maximize the distance. Well, it sounds like you and I are cut from the same gliding cloth. That's what I like to do as well. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure doing that kind of flying. And unfortunately for me and I think for you living where you are, winter is still with us for a couple of months and uh, we're going to have to 
get through this COVID winter and then start flying again in the spring? Yeah, I think it's going to be a couple of more months that we can fly again like we like we used to know it. But I mean, at some point, it it will be like it used to be, and I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, Morris, listen, I, I wish you all the best with this and your colleagues. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you on the show again uh, in the future. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. WeGlide's Moritz Althaus spoke to me from Heidelberg, Germany. For more info on this great site, go to weglide.org. That's W-E-G-L-I-D-E dot org. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight. This weather app was designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. SkySight is easy to use and has great functionality. And it's great for predicting convergence lines and task planning. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. The Gliding Associations of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway have joined forces to publish an online magazine called Nordic Gliding. It's a very slick publication, and through the magic of Google Translate, it can easily be viewed in English and other languages. Jens Trabelt is Nordic Gliding's executive editor, and I reached him in Helsingør, Denmark. Hello, Jens. Uh, Nice to meet you on air. Thank you very much. Hello to you and all the uh, the listeners out there. Now, I've got to really congratulate you on Nordic Gliding. It's a really professional site and uh, very enjoyable to uh, to read and go through. Oh, thank you very much. We try our best. Yeah, well, it's certainly working. Now, g- give me some background <laughs> yeah. on this, this Nordic Gliding online presence. How does it work out between all of the different gliding associations between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden? How do you do that? Well, I can I can give you a little uh, background story of how it all uh, started and how it all evolved. It started out in in January of 2013, where uh, we had a situation where the um, the Danish GA magazine had gone out of business, the Swedish um, gliding magazine had stopped, and the Norwegian gliding magazine had stopped as well. So there was a there was a at that time there was a collapse in in the magazines and in the media. Uh, in the Nordic countries, and uh, I saw that as an opportunity to approach the, the three Dan- the three gliding federations in the Nordic countries: um, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And um, we agreed to make a um, like a common magazine for the Nordic pilot yeah. because our language is so similar. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if you write in Denmark. If you write in Danish, most Norwegians can understand it, and if you write in Swedish, most Danes can understand it. I mean, there's there's a few words that you will not be able to understand, but the context is there, right, and, right. and and we all pilots, so we usually get altimeter the idea is the same word on. in all so three that was languages. The idea. <laughs> yes, something like that, um, and we we have made the. So if you're a member of the, the gliding associations in, in those three countries, and also, also in Iceland, actually, 
you will get the magazine as part of your membership um, automatically. So that was the idea. And we've been doing that uh, from 2013 until 2020. And we just published the last magazine in, in December, actually. Um, and now we are going, at the, at the time where we started the magazine, we were, we were discussing, okay, should we make this a digital product? Because, I mean, paper is very nice and you can, you can keep it forever. But the problem with paper is that um, once you publish a magazine and people read it, the, the content becomes inactive. Right. It just sits there and you cannot mix the content, content with other types of content. And very often with, um, if, you have, uh, if you have a content, say like a review of a glider, a test of a new product, it would be very nice to to link it with other kinds of content that, I mean, if you have a Champiert glider, it would be very nice to link that test of the Champiert glider with the, with, the, with, the, with the portrait of the factory and some other, you know, related stuff. And you can't right, do so that a constantly with a, living with a uh, physical magazine. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. So, and yeah, so we've always thought about this, but in 2013, when we started the, the project, the, the time was not, um, people were not ready for that kind of product. Mm -hmm. But we can see now that with social media and, and digital content and, and people are, um, are not using flow media as much like old-fashioned TV where, TV where you just like turn on the TV and just watch whatever you want and whatever is served for you. You want to pick up your content um, much more now than you you, you want, uh, like, say, 10 years ago. And that, that's a trend that is very well documented in all um, media studies that are being done right now. And you can see the advent of YouTube and things like that. Right. So, so we so decided let me ask from, you, is, is the, the physical magazine, yeah. is it now dead? Have you killed it? And the, we are not publishing a, a physical magazine anymore. No, that's correct. And it's only, it's only digital huh, uh, now. And, of course, we... We save a lot of money on 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 doing it um, with a digital version, and also you can we can publish the things much more quickly. I mean, before I would sometimes have to wait if I was unlucky with a deadline. I would sometimes because we would publish every two months. I would have to wait almost two months for a, to get a story out, and that's not. I mean, today that's not really that's not a satisfying satisfying feeling to have a two-month-old story. Right, um, there's no immediacy. If you've got a good story, you want to kick it out the door. Sure. I mean, uh, we we take great pride in, in being some of the first that test the new gliders. I mean, we just tested the, the DG-1001 with the FES engine, mm -hmm. and we just flew the new AS-33, and we were the first to, to fly them. So that's, that contents need to get out there as fast as possible, and I don't want to sit on that for too much and no. waiting for like a <laughs> for the printing press. So as an editor, that's very satisfying to be able to do that. And, and also, as and you I mentioned, think people appreciate it. Oh. Now, now that it's digital, that article, that information will live online forever, essentially. Sure. And whenever there's new content that comes along that has some shared uh, themes, or you can you can pull that data. You and on every article, it's. Whenever I publish a new article, I, I attach some metadata to it. I mean, it's uh, if so. If you want, if you go to the site, 
to the Nordic gliding side and you want to read all about um, uh, Alexander Schleicher gliders, you just push the Schleicher button, you get all the articles with the Schleicher. If you want to re read all about the uh, World Championship articles, you just press that metadata button and everything comes up. So having a, and we have a huge backlog of content that is not obsolete. I mean, it still has um, quality and, and, and some, some currency in it. So right. that's, that's a very nice thing to do, I think. So, so the other good news useful. is that, so the gliding associations don't have to cough up the money for printing and mailing. So your costs are down dramatically. You're able to, I noticed, advertise yeah. on the website as well and recoup some money because that will pay for, I mean, you're the editor that pays for your services, right? Your job. Sure. It, it certainly helps. Uh, I mean, um, and advertising is also, I mean, it's, it's not, um, these are the, the advertisers we have on the Nordic Lighting websites, particularly on the front page are, are companies that people know very well and are interested in their products. Uh, people are interested, the readers are interested in. It's not like vacuum cleaners or, you know, right. sneakers or something like that. It's, it's proper gliding related ads. So that's, that's, that's actually, that helps a lot. Uh, that integrates it very well, I think, in the, in the, the content. So that's another thing that's important for us. Well, I and think we can see that the advertisers say, very supportive of us. They, they want to be on, on our front page, for sure. I think you're leading the way because I, I'm almost certain within the next couple of years, all the big national gliding magazines will be going the same way because it just doesn't make uh, financial sense to keep publishing the paper magazines. Plus, you know, we're such a push for everybody being green now as well. There's an argument to be made not to do that either. Well, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in in the past uh, dealing with uh, customs officers in various Nordic countries, whenever uh, one of the, uh, the trucks with one of the, with containing thousands of magazines got stuck somewhere on the border, you know, between Norway and Sweden or where, wherever it was. Uh, and it, it just doesn't make sense to drive stuff from uh, the printing press in uh, Estonia or whatever to, uh, to the north of Norway. I mean, it's, it's just, um, very old-fashioned concept, really. Yeah, I think absolutely, and and we can see that um, how people consume or use the content of the the digital product is also has also changed a lot. I mean, we can see that uh, nearly fifty percent of the of users or the the traffic on the site is coming from uh, mobile phones. Right. So people are um, accessing the content much more. Um, freely than they used to before. I mean, they, they, you don't have to have a magazine lying around to access the contents. You could do that, you know, while you're in your tent at the gliding airfield yeah, or whatever, yeah. you, wherever you are. You, have, you always have access to the content. So that's, that's very important. Now, the thing that I found absolutely brilliant uh, as an English-speaking glider pilot is the ability to use uh, Google Translate on the, the website. So all of those articles, I mean, the translation is 95% correct, and it's really good. I was super impressed. So I can imagine your audience growing quite dramatically with, you know, in the English-speaking gliding world. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing we were quite uh, interested in finding out how well the, the, um, the translations work. Because, I mean, um, this is a magazine that is made for the Nordic countries. And the Nordic countries have, have they're funding it. So it's about what it's like to be, it's, it's portraying the, the clubs and culture in the Nordic countries. 
But we thought there's also content here that might, might be interesting for other people. And we also have, we want to have people coming to the Nordic countries and flying here because we have, you know, the mountains and whatnot and flying courses here. So we thought we, we have paid for this content. Why not let other people see it? I mean, it, 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 would, it would be like if you, if you have an airfield and you, you decide to put a big fence around the airfield, big black yeah. fence and saying, oh, people have not paid, the, the, you know, the spectators have not paid for the glider so they cannot, you know, have a joy in watching the glider fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, look, I, so, I will be going onto your website yeah. regularly. Um, it, it, I'd seen it a few months ago, but it, it only recently that I discover the, the ability to use Google Translate and uh, read all the articles. It's really, really good. Yeah, I'll be including um, in uh, on the top of every article I make. I will be making um, a link to automatic automatic translation um, because we can see there's a. I mean, of course, there's a huge um, audience in the Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian uh, glider pilots. But we can see also there's a there's a big traffic coming from Germany, from the UK, from France, from uh, America, and mm -hmm. other places in the world where gliding is. Glider pilots are active, so uh, it's it's really it's a global website when it comes to uh, people that are interested in it for sure. So in that sense, it's been a success, I think. Ah, oh, huge success! Now, Jens, before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your own flying. Where do you fly, and what do you fly? Well, I'm I fly I fly in north of Copenhagen called the North Zealand Gliding Club, which is the biggest gliding club in in Denmark if you count the members. Mm -hmm. And it's also uh, the biggest gliding club in the Nordic countries. Uh, we are around 150 members and we have a lot of, lot of nice gliders. Um, so it's, it's a nice place to fly. We're a little bit, I mean, the, the island on which Copenhagen is situated is only like 150 kilometers wide and maybe 120 kilometers on the other, from north to south. So it's not a, it's not a huge piece of land, so we're not. It's not. It's not like being in the middle of Canada, if you know. Yeah. I mean, thermal-wise, but sometimes we we do that. That if you're not familiar with the geography, geography, it's it's only a very short distance across a small uh, channel of, of body of water to Sweden, and Sweden is a huge country compared to the Danish islands. Right. Uh, and sometimes we take a very high tow. And we have an Nimbus 4DT, and we have um, a new Arcus we just had delivered, Arcus T. And sometimes we take a high tow to 5,000 feet, and then we just glide across the water on flight plan into Sweden and connect with the, with the thermals there. And we can go where it's almost like mainland climate there, and we can go for very, very long flights there. That's uh, very I mean, cool. So that's very cool. So that's, that's not too bad. Um, my, I myself have the, the I have the privilege to sometimes be able to to fly while on my job because I need to test new gliders and visit clubs around the Nordic countries. So uh, that's I'm very fortunate in that way. I mean, it's um, well, I, I'm starting to think so that the host I, of the Thermal Podcast uh, needs to go on some of these uh, gliding test uh, journeys with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome. I mean, uh, usually we don't have a lot of time to play around with gliders because it's it's not it's um 
we're usually under huge, you know, how the weather can be. And we have some, sometimes we have, a, uh, you know, an airplane, uh, you know, a, a ticket waiting for us at the airport at the end, uh, end of the day. So sometimes it's a little bit of a rush. It's not like a gliding holiday and something yeah, like yeah, that, but yeah. uh, get all the photos done and things like that. So uh, it can be sure, stress stressful, but demanding. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still fun. Uh, but I enjoy it very much. It's so it's great fun, and it's, and it's. Um, I used to be an automotive journalist as well, and um, with regards to that, um, it's it's interesting to deal with the glider gliding factories because you are so much closer to the people who actually made the product, and designed the product, and makes all the decisions. And um, if you if you look at the the journeys I would go to when I when I traveled around the world testing cars. That would be a huge setup, and and uh, would, you would have a lot of marketing people taking care of you, right. and you would be very far away from the people who actually made the decisions about the actual product. Um, and I enjoy that with the gliding world that you're very close to uh, the designers and constructors and the CEO of the factories. So Absolutely. that's uh, that's that's good fun actually. Uh, I enjoy that. Well, Jens, listen, I'm going to be going to the website on a regular basis. I think it's fabulous. Big congratulations again on the good work. Keep it up. And uh, I'm sure Thank we'll chat much. with you again on the podcast. Yeah, be happy to. Thanks, okay. for, thanks for calling me. Take care, Jens. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Nordic Gliding's executive editor, Jens Trabold, spoke to me from Helsingborg, Denmark. If you want to check out this site, go to nordicgliding.com. That's nordicgliding.com. And that's it for episode number 20 of The Thermal. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and that the sound levels are acceptable. It's been a bit of a challenge to master the various technical aspects of putting out the show. I really appreciate it when you get in touch with interview suggestions and feedback. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.